Father in heaven, we thank you for waking us up this morning and for bringing us out to receive a blessing again today. pray that you will be with all of the presentations today, and I pray that you would give me the words to speak right now that would be a blessing to each one of us and that it would stir our hearts with what we need to surrender to you. So I pray that you would be with me now as we go through this presentation, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the morning meetings, as I said yesterday, are walking through the sanctuary message in the book of Revelation. Yesterday we did an overview, and so hopefully that gave you a big picture understanding of how the, Revel the book of Revelation is basically the sanctuary message. And what we are going to do today is we are going to dig more deeply into the sanctuary message aspect of the message to the Laodicean church. Now, I want to read a statement as we start this message. And this is from Publishing Ministry, page 389. And I think you're going to see the contrast that we can sometimes have because as Seventh-day Adventists, we know that God has given us the truth. But sometimes, because we know that we have the truth, it leads to carelessness in our daily walk. So notice the statement from Publishing Ministry, page 389. It is as certain that we have the truth as that God lives. Let me read that again. It is as certain that we have the truth as that God lives. And Satan, with all his arts and hellish power, cannot change the truth of God into a lie. While the great adversary will try his utmost to make of none effect the word of God, truth must go forth as a lamp that burneth. And, you know, this can lead sometimes to us saying, we have the truth as surely as God is living, so as long as I'm going forth proclaiming the truth, even if my life isn't right with God, at least I have the truth. And it is true that it, it is as certain that we have the truth as that God lives. That's a powerful statement, friends. Don't let anybody ever make you doubt the truths of Adventism. And by the way, if any of you here are struggling with certainty about the truths of Adventism, talk to me. Talk to anybody that you trust, the other speakers, whoever it is. I mean, we'll be happy to sit down and, and open the Bible with you and show you why the truths that God has given to us for this time are the truth. And... I know with all of my heart that the truths that we have are the truth for this time. It is a certain that we have the truth as that God lives. And yes, Satan is attacking this church. We are the remnant church of Bible prophecy who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And it's not a coincidence that the commandments or obedience, as well as the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, are under great attack in Adventism today. So, we have this one side of the coin that we are the remnant church. 
but Jesus from the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary has another message for his last day church as well. He's telling us, you have the truth, just as certain as God is alive, we have the truth. God has given that to us, but there's something else that he says to us. And let's go to Revelation chapter 3, verses, starting in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Boy, that's a bad account. Now, Ellen White has something to say about how Adventism is going to respond when the message of Jesus from the most holy place comes to his church. Because this is the message of the faithful and true witness. We saw yesterday in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And the faithful witness is giving testimony in court about the condition of his judgment hour people, the Laodicean people, which means a judged people. And you would have hoped that the testimony that Jesus would give about his judgment hour people is that this is the most on-fire church I've ever had. They are going forth to take the gospel to the world in this generation, and they are doing everything they can in their power to advance the cause of God so that Jesus will come in their lifetime. But we see what Jesus said. Ellen White has something very interesting to say about what will happen when the message from Jesus comes to Adventism the way it needs to come. Notice the statement in Early Writings, page 270. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. So the true witness, the faithful and true witness, his message is going to bring a shaking. It's called the straight testimony. That is going to bring the shaking to Adventism. Now, we need to be careful about what we call the straight testimony because some people will get up and give a, straight, a so-called straight testimony about any number of things, and I've seen people do this, and yet it doesn't really have anything to do with what Jesus says in Revelation 3, 14 to 22. The true straight testimony is Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Now let's keep reading here. What's going to be the effect of this straight testimony? This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. So those who receive the message in their heart, the way God has designed this message to 
be received are going to receive it in such a way that they will then start giving the message to Adventism where they will pour forth the straight truth to God's people because they've received it straight from Jesus in the most holy place. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it, and this is what will cause the shaking among God's people. So you will have a class of Adventists who will say, I finally heard the voice of Jesus speaking to me. This is my true condition. I am wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I need the righteousness of Christ. I need the converting grace of Jesus in my life. Here is the truth of Adventism for this time from Jesus to us directly, and yet there will be others in the church that will say, don't tell me this. I don't want to hear this. I am comfortable in my current understanding of Christianity, and I want to go to heaven the way I am now. Don't rock the bow and make me uncomfortable. And that is what will cause a shaking among God's people. She goes on to say, I saw that the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heeded. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. This testimony must work deep repentance. All who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. You know, I said this yesterday. The problem among Adventism today is that everybody who hears the Laodicean message says, that is such a good message. That is so true, and I'm thankful it doesn't apply to me. And the reason why you're saying that is because you're lightly esteeming the message, you're not regarding it, and the message really does apply to you. You know, several years ago, there was a survey in the Adventist church. And in the letters to the editor, some of you may remember a, a man by the name of John, Jan Doward. He wrote some books, some storybooks for children and other things. He wrote a letter to, uh, excuse me, a letter to the editor where he commented on the outcome of the survey. And the survey asked a number of questions, but these are four of the questions that were asked. And I'm going to go through these questions and give you the results. These were questions asked of Seventh-day Adventists in the 1980s, and I suspect that the numbers are probably worse now than they were back then. But here were the questions. How many of you have an intimate relationship with Christ? How many of you have an assurance of eternal life? How many of you study the Bible every day? And how many of you have family worship? Now, if you are a Seventh-day Adventist, it should be 100% across the board, right? Intimate relationship with Jesus, having confidence in your standing with God, studying the Bible every day, having family worship, those are pretty basic elements. Here's the results. 63% of Seventh-day Adventists at that time said that they had an intimate relationship with Jesus. Nearly two-thirds. Now, by the standards of the world, that's not too bad. If you're taking a test, that's pretty bad. But anyway, that's pretty bad, though, for Adventists, for only two-thirds to say they have an intimate relationship with Jesus. What are you doing? I mean, why are you a Seventh-day Adventist if you're not spending time with Jesus? 
63%. Now, when it comes to the question of assurance of eternal life, it gets a little bit better. 73%. That's pretty good. I mean, 10% of people who don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus somehow still have assurance of eternal life. So 63% of Adventists have an intimate relationship with Jesus, and 73% are assured of eternal life. Now, when it comes to studying the Bible every day and having family worship, guess what the numbers are? 33% study the Bible every day, and 34, it's the other way, 34% study the Bible every day, and 33% have family worship. Wait a minute. You're telling me you have an intimate relationship with Jesus, but you're not studying his word? How does that work? That would be like me saying, yeah, Joel and I have such a deep, intimate relationship, but we talk to each other once a week when we're at church together because we want to put on a good front to everybody that's watching to make it look like we actually have a good relationship. Is that an intimate relationship? No. And some of us think that we can show up to church on Sabbath without spending time with Jesus the rest of the week and call that an intimate relationship that leads to assurance of eternal salvation. And you wonder why Jesus says you think you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And I, I wouldn't be too naive to think that you could be even in a place like Uchi Pines where you are doing the Lord's work and you can get so busy doing the Lord's work that you forget to spend time with him. You're doing good things. You're doing helpful things. You're following the counsel. And don't stop doing those things, but you've forgotten to do the most important thing, and that is to spend time with Jesus every day. Jesus put his finger on the pulse of Adventism when he gave this message to the Laodicean church through John the Revelator. Let's look at these verses again, starting in verse 14. Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So here we see Jesus is the faithful witness. He's giving testimony in court about our true condition. He's identifying himself as the creator. He is the beginning of the creation of God, meaning that he is the creator of all things. And this reminds us of the first angel's message where it says, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. And that worship connected to, the, to him who made the sea, the fountains of waters, connects us back to the fourth commandment. So when... Jesus is identified not only as the faithful and true witness, but as the creator. That is reminding the judgment hour church that the Sabbath experience is part of his last day church's message. And before I go any further, the Sabbath is often misunderstood or we we miss the blessing of the sabbath which is an indication of, of our lukewarm condition as a church you know ellen white says in desire of ages page 283 that in order for men to keep the sabbath holy 
they must themselves be holy. So we come to Sabbath and we've had bad week after bad week and we're not kind and we're not nice and we're absorbed with the things of the world perhaps and we're consumed with our cares of life and then Friday afternoon comes and I hate to say it but Friday afternoon for a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who know they need to be ready for Sabbath is the worst few hours of the week as they frantically scurry around and get all stressed out about getting their house ready for Sabbath because they better be ready in time for sundown and people get short with each other and they're getting upset because we've got to get the house all scurried and whatever and you know what it's like on Friday afternoon if you're not converted and then sundown comes and you're like oh Sabbath's here but your mind is still going 100 miles an hour and if you're not careful you're thinking about all the things that you were doing during the week and you're not resting in Jesus listen your Sabbath experience is a reflection of of where your heart is all week long. And I heard someone say this several years ago, and I have always, for my own self, found this to be true. Your readiness for Sabbath on a weekly basis is a weekly test of your readiness for the coming of Jesus. Sabbath is a holy day. You have all week to be ready to meet a holy God. What are we doing with the time that God gives us on a weekly basis to be ready to meet Jesus? If you're making the appropriate preparations every week, then you're making the appropriate preparations in your life for the coming of Jesus. So Jesus says to the Laodicean church, I am the faithful and true witness. I'm giving an account of your condition. I am the creator God, and it's a reminder to, uh, connecting us to the first angel's message to worship him that made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters, which reminds us of the fourth commandment where it says, for in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, the, thing, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So God is speaking to his Sabbath-keeping people. And he says to his Sabbath-keeping people in verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. You know, it's interesting. Works has become a four-letter word in Adventism. We don't want to be known as legalists. So we've sometimes swung too far the other way. Yet Jesus seems to be concerned about our works. Now, we understand that our works don't save us, that we're saved by grace through faith, that we're justified by faith, and we're saved by the grace of Jesus. But guess what? It's true that our works can't save us, but they sure can cause us to be lost. And Jesus says, I know your works. So if Jesus is concerned about the works of Laodicea, why is it that the Laodicean church tries to place such a de-emphasis on works? It's because... We're Laodicean. We're lukewarm. Jesus says, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Those of you who understand the history of Laodicea, you know that there was these hot springs up on a mountain or a plateau above the city, and then the warm, hot water would come down into the town of Laodicea. And by the time that hot water got down into the town of Laodicea, instead of being this nice, hot, spring water that people would go up um, to bathe in, it was 
nasty, lukewarm water that nobody wanted to drink. And Jesus says, hey, Laodicean church, you remind me of those hot springs of water that may have started off on fire for God, but you've cooled off, but you're not ice cold because ice cold water is nice to drink. You are lukewarm. You make me want to vomit. Jesus says, when he says, I will spew you out of my mouth, that's old King James language. Modern translations make it clear. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now think about this. You are part of the body of Christ, but Jesus says, if you stay the way you are, I will vomit you out, meaning you will be shaken out. Remember, the straight testimony is bringing a shaking. You will either stay in or be shaken out. And if you are vomited out of the mouth of Christ, you are vomited out of the body of Christ. The church is his body. And if you are shaken out, vomited out, you are no longer part of the body of Christ. So this is a serious message. What is it about Laodicea? And this is the message of Jesus from the most holy place. Remember, Jesus is doing a work to try to cleanse his church of sin. And he looks at his church and he's like, this is bad. You make me want to throw up. We need to, be ch we need to change or otherwise we're not going to be cleansed. But what is it about Laodicea that makes Jesus say, you make me want to throw up? Now, let me say this. I would hope. That as you consider Jesus your Savior hanging on the cross, it would break your heart to hear him say of us that we, wanna, we make him want to throw up. That should bother you. If it doesn't, it's probably because you're Laodicean. If you're like, oh... <laughs> Jesus wouldn't vomit me out. He loves me too much to get rid of me. You know what? Jesus doesn't want to get rid of you, okay? But he also says, if I have to, I will. But Jesus risked everything to save you. It's not like he wants to get rid of you, but he's saying, I can't keep you if you're going to stay rebellious. What is it that makes us as a people, lukewarm. Because you may be saying, man, I mean, look, I, I go to church every Sabbath. I mean, I'm even here at Uchi Pines for this convention. I want to know more about truth. Or I live here, and I'm doing God's work. How could I be lukewarm? Jesus tells us why in verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus says, Because you say... I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So here is the problem. Laodicea says, we're rich, we're increased with goods, we don't need anything else, we have everything we need, we are good. And Jesus says, let me tell you something, actually you aren't rich. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You're not rich, you're poor, and you're blind so that you don't see that you're poor, and you're naked, and you're wretched, and you're miserable, and you don't even know it. Now, this is a hard thing to hear because in a literal sense, if you're wealthy, now actually, 
uh, this thought just came into my mind. I once read an article, this, w this was, went along with the Sabbath School lesson from a few years ago, where they talked about the worry of the wealthy, people that are worth millions upon millions and sometimes billions of dollars. You, you realize that those people don't have peace if they're not connected to the Lord? They're like worried all the time that the stock market's going to crash, and so they're like divesting assets and diversifying them so that if 50% of the banks crash here, then at least they'll have some money over in this country or that country, and they're always worried about losing what they have. Um, but for those of us who don't have that kind of money, our impression would be like, man, if I had a billion dollars, I wouldn't have to worry about anything. That's the impression we have. It's not true, but that's what we think. And so Jesus is painting this picture saying, you know, you think you don't have to worry about anything because you think you have everything you need. You think everything's great. You're rich. You're increased with goods. Now, it may be true here in North America that because we have so much, look, even if you... Um, are on a self-supporting income. You're wealthy compared to much of the world. And the things that you have here and the access that you have to a lot of things here in America, you're wealthy to much of the world. So it could be that as American Adventists, we allow our access to all this affluence affect our spiritual walk with God. And that, that can be the case. But Jesus isn't really speaking to physical material wealth, although that can be an issue. Jesus is speaking to something deeper when he says, you think you're rich and increased with goods, but you're actually poor. Because he tells us how to become rich in verse 18 when he says, I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Now look, if all we had to do to get into heaven was to buy literal gold that had been burned in a fire so that it would be purified, then look, all we would have to do is save up enough money over a period of time to get that gold, and then we'd all be on our way to heaven. And we know that that's not what Jesus is really speaking of. This is spiritual language here. So go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Which says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus is saying. You think you're rich, but what you need is gold tried in the fire so that you will be rich. And what gold tried in the fire is the trial of your faith. Here's what Jesus is saying. Adonis, you think you have faith. You think you have saving faith. You think you have righteousness by faith. But Jesus says, I have a question for you. What is your faith like when you are tested and tried? What Jesus is saying is, is that most of us do not have the faith that we need to get through the final crisis of earth's history. Most of us are like the children of Israel. We have faith when we see blessings. We live by sight and not by faith. So when we have blessings, we claim to have faith in the promises of God, and we talk about how God is blessing us. But when the times of testing and trial come, we don't have gold tried in the fire. We are poor. 
Jesus says you don't have the the riches that you need. You don't have the gold tried in the fire. You actually fall apart like the children of Israel did in the wilderness. And so here's the paradox. Laodicea says we are rich. And to be rich, according to this verse, is to have faith. So Laodicea is saying we are rich. We have saving faith. We have righteousness by faith. We have assurance of eternal salvation, even though we aren't spending time with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you do not have the riches that you think you have. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you are spiritually rich when you're not spending time with Jesus to tap in to the riches of the resources that he wants to give to us. Keeping yourself busy doing spiritual things is not necessarily an evidence that you have the gold tried in the fire. The evidence of the gold tried in the fire is what your character is like when the going gets rough. And so Laodicea, the group of people that Jesus is trying to prepare for his coming to be cleansed by his blood is described as in a terrible condition. In fact, when you look at these words that Jesus uses to describe Laodicea, not only are we not rich and increased with goods, meaning we don't have faith, Jesus says we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now I'm just going to go through a couple of these words. Some of you may have seen this before. But the Greek word for wretched is talaiparos. Do you know where the other place in the Bible that word wretched is found? Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now, what's Romans 7 all about? I don't have all day to talk about Romans 7, but Romans 7 is a description of a man who is in bondage to sin. It starts off, so you have Romans 6 where you were either servants of righteousness or servants to sin, and then in Romans 7, Paul gives the illustration of marriage saying that if you want to be married to Christ, the old man of sin that you've, who's been your slave master needs to die. Because Christ will not commit spiritual adultery. So if the old man dies, Christ will be married to you. But if the old man is alive, Christ won't marry you. And you will know what is right, but you're not going to have the power to do it. So that's what Romans 7 then describes. Romans 7 then describes, starting in verse 14, what it is like to be in slavery or bondage to the old man of sin, which is your carnal nature. Romans 7:14 Paul says for we know that the law is spiritual but I am carnal sold under sin. Now friends, if you are sold under sin, that means you are a slave to sin. Please then don't tell me that slavery to sin is righteousness by faith. This is the wretched experience that Laodicea has. And Laodicea is now preaching from the pulpits. I am so thankful that because Paul struggled in Romans 7, that his experience is my experience, and Jesus will save me anyway. And Jesus says, you think you're rich. 
You think that your Romans 7 experience is the righteousness by faith experience on the way to heaven. And Jesus is saying, I am telling you, you are wretched, just like that man of Romans 7. But this time you don't even know it. At least Paul knew it. Here's what it's like to be a slave to sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Slavery. We have a horrible history in this country of slavery in the early years of Americans' history. It's, not a, it's a terrible blight on a record. But here's the reality. With slavery, a slave is bound to his master to do what his master says to do. And a slave will do things that he doesn't want to do. And a slave won't be able to do things that he wants to do. That's what it's like to be a slave to sin when the old man, the carnal man, is your slave master. People try to make it sound like this is a state of being and that will just stay this way till Jesus comes. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying the carnal mind is enmity against God in Romans 8. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. What he is describing is an individual who is under conviction of the law of God, and he delights in the law of God after the inner man, but he sees another law in his members warring against the law of his mind and bringing him into captivity to the law of sin and death. So you know what's good, you see what's good, but you're still a slave. So you can see what freedom looks like, but you're still in bondage to that old man of sin because somehow the devil has deceived you that if you don't put the old man to death, you won't be you anymore. And you won't have fun anymore. And you won't enjoy life anymore. Let me tell you something, friends. Slavery is to sin is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. It doesn't bring happiness and freedom and peace. It brings discouragement, despondency, and anything else you can think of. That is what Jesus says about Laodicea. You are wretched. And the only other time in the Bible that the word wretched is used is to describe the man of Romans 7 who is that wretched man who is in bondage to sin. He does the things he doesn't want to do. He doesn't do the things he wants to do. He sees the law of God, but he doesn't have the power to keep it because the old man of sin is still driving his life. And please don't tell me that slavery to sin is going to reflect the character of Jesus as we usher in the coming of Jesus. And yet that is the experience of the Laodicean church. Not only are they wretched, they are miserable. This is the Greek word eleinos, which is also only used by the Apostle Paul one other time in the Bible. So John the Revelator uses the word wretched and miserable, and then only Paul the Apostle uses wretched and miserable in the Greek one other time. And this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, which says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now this is pretty tough, and let me say this. This is... Sometimes what we as physicians have to do, we have to share the reality of the bad news so that we can give the true remedy to help someone get better. You know, I have people come to my office a lot in my neurology practice who think they have 
strokes or multiple sclerosis or this or that. They'll have like numbness in their face, numbness in their arm, numbness on one side of the body. And I'll just do a simple little test. It's a hyperventilation test. We hyperventilate you for a minute. And if your symptoms come on, guess what you're having? Anxiety. Now, that doesn't make you a bad person. That just means that you're going through some difficult challenges and you need to understand your true problem so that you can get the help that you need to cope with the issues you're dealing with. Well, believe it or not, a majority of people who receive this diagnosis don't want to hear that. They want to have a stroke or multiple sclerosis or something else than to be told they're having anxiety problems. I'm like, are you kidding me? You don't want to have multiple sclerosis. I would much rather have an anxiety problem than multiple sclerosis because multiple sclerosis has lesions in the brain. And look, some of you, there's a few of you who remember my father from the, years, for, from the year he was here many years ago. That's what he had. And, I mean, it, there's a, there are advances in understanding with multiple sclerosis now, but still, if you had to pick between a condition that was injuring your brain versus that which was not, and you were just getting physical symptoms because you're stressed, that's what you would want, and I try to help people through that. But some people still don't want to hear it. But my job is to be truthful and to tell you what your true condition is. So Jesus says you're wretched like the man of Romans 7. He also says you're miserable like 1 Corinthians 15, 19. This is what Jesus is saying about Laodicea. Just as Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Jesus is saying, Laodicea, here is why you are miserable. Because you think you're going to heaven. So you have hope in Christ for this life, but it's for this life only which makes you miserable. And you don't even know it. That's, that's pretty bad. Jesus is saying you're wretched because you have the experience of Romans 7 of being in slavery to sin, and you think slavery to sin is righteousness by faith, and you're miserable because you think that slavery to sin is still going to get you into the kingdom, but you're deceived because that hope is only for this life, and you're going to find out at the end of the judgment that that experience will keep you out of heaven. Do you see why this message is going to bring a shaking to Adventism? Because there is much of Adventism that says, don't tell me that my Romans 7 experience is not righteousness by faith. Don't tell me that my slavery to sin is going to keep me out of heaven. God is going to be a merciful God. He's going to be a forgiving God. And he's going to overlook my carnal nature and selfishness that never submitted to Jesus. And he'll just let me into the kingdom. And as Brother Lemon said yesterday, God's already dealt with that kind of an attitude in heaven before. And he had to kick Satan out. Why would he bring that back in? And of course, Jesus says, not only are you wretched you're, or, and miserable, you're poor, blind, and naked. If you're poor, you don't have faith, meaning you don't have the righteousness of Christ by faith. You're blind, you don't see your true condition, your nakedness. You're without the righteousness of Christ. And so Laodicean Adventism is walking around proclaiming assurance of salvation and that we're on our way to heaven and we're actually spiritually naked and don't even know it. So what's the remedy? I've given you the diagnosis. Listen, you don't want to just go to a doctor. 
that tells you everything that's wrong with you and then says, sorry, <laughs> you go figure out what to do. That's not a good doctor. A good doctor will not only tell you what's wrong with you, he'll also tell you how to get better. And Jesus is the greatest physician. So he has not only told us what's wrong with us, and, you know, I'll have to admit, every time I get through verse 17, it's not humanly pleasant to come to that understanding about myself. But we need to if we're going to be ready to meet Jesus. If we just gloss over these verses and say, oh, I'm not that bad. Yes, you are. Jesus wants to throw up. Stop giving yourself platitudes of comfort that have no meaning. Don't listen to preachers who comfort you in your life of sin. Listen to Jesus directly. It's much safer to listen to Jesus than to a human who would blunt the words of Jesus. So here's what Jesus says. This is how we can advance from this condition. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase, and be zealous therefore, and repent. You realize that Jesus is saying all of this to us because he loves us? You could make an argument that the Laodicean message is the most loving message of all the message to messages to the seven churches because he actually is honest with us about our true condition. You know, Ellen White says in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 101, that this is the reaction of many in the church. Messages of warning dictated by the Holy Spirit are borne by the servants of God. Defects of character are presented before the erring, but they say, that does not represent my case. I do not accept the message you bring. I am doing the best I can. I believe the truth. Don't be like that. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Now, Jesus says you need to buy gold tried in the fire, which Ellen Wise says it's faith and love. We saw in 1 Peter 1.7 that it's faith, going through the, the trials of life that build our faith up. So we need to have true faith. We need to accept the trials that God sends our way, and when those trials come, say, Lord, teach me, and give me the faith experience that I need to learn to trust in you and to hang on to you through this trial so that I will have the gold tried in the fire that you are trying to sell to me. Ellen White calls Jesus in Revelation 3 the heavenly merchant man who is coming around selling the heavenly wares that he wants to give to each one of us. So when we need gold tried in the fire, willing to go through the fiery trials of life, White raiment, that's obviously the righteousness of Christ. Ellen White says of this robe in Christ's object lesson, it's pages 311 and 312, this robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. Then she quotes Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And she says, by his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. 
When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. So we're not having the experience of Romans 7 where we're thinking things we shouldn't be thinking and not thinking the things we should be thinking. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. Then she says, we live his life. That's not Romans 7. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Friends, to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness means to live the life of Christ, to think his thoughts. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. You know, you go to Zechariah 3, where Joshua is standing before the high priest, and he has filthy garments, and you look at some pictures that are painted, and you see the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness being placed over Joshua's filthy garments. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, take off the filthy garments. But Adventism wants to keep their filthy garments on and somehow be clothed with the garment of Christ's righteousness, even though we're not living the life of Christ and surrendering to him. It is very clear that to be clothed with the garment of Christ's righteousness is to live the life of Christ. Now, I need to bring this on to its conclusion to hit the key points here. Jesus says, as many as I love... And by the way, the, the, the ISAV, that's spiritual discernment. Let me just say this. We need more discernment in our church. I get tired. Uh, I mean, I, I hate to come across as sounding irritated, but I get tired of all the fanaticism that comes into the church. Where's the discernment? It just shows a lack of conversion. We have people that get into stuff like the 2520, and somehow that's going to prepare me to receive the seal of God when Ellen White never made such claims about such so, such a so-called prophecy. Now people are saying that in order to receive the latter rain, we need to understand that there's only one true God, which is the Father, and Jesus is the Son, and the Holy Spirit really isn't a person, and that it, you have to understand it that way in order to receive the seal of God. Where is our discernment? When Ellen White says that the Holy Spirit is as much as a person as the Father and the Son are. I mean, that's the only statement I need to settle that case. Where's our discernment? But anyway, I won't spend any more time on that. We need ISAV. We get these carnal tests that we create, and then we judge people who don't view our fanatical acceptance as being wrong, and we're the only ones who are going to receive the latter end. Give me a break, friends. Come on. Now, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You know, one of the messages that is lacking in Adventism today is the message of repentance. We'll just hear messages about how God loves us and how God forgives us and he'll cover us, but there's no preaching about genuine sorrow for sin and turning away from sin. And repentance is a genuine sorrow for sin and a a turning away from it. And so in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You know, the reality is is that if Jesus is standing at the door of Laodicea and knocking, that means he is on the outside of Laodicea. 
So we have a form of godliness, but Jesus isn't in our lives. So we talk about Jesus, but he's not the Lord of our lives because he's not in our hearts. And so Jesus says, I appreciate the fact that you take my name, but I'd like to be in your lives. How about if you let me come in? And so he stands at the door knocking. He's not banging the door down. He's just gently knocking and he's saying, who will let him come in? And if we let him come in, this correlates, of course, with Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Living by the faith of the Son of God is the faith of Jesus, which is the third angel's message. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's what happens. Laodicea, who responds to the message, Christ comes in, sin goes out. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of God is finished so you go from a Laodicean church in the seven churches to the 144,000 being sealed in the seals and you get to the seven trumpets and you have the mystery of God finished so that Revelation 18 can be fulfilled where an angel comes down from heaven and the earth is lightened with its glory because Jesus has come into Laodicea but Laodicea has not let Jesus come in now let me show you something that's very fascinating to me when Jesus says, I will come in and will sup with him, and he with me, Jesus is saying, if you open the door, I'll have a meal with you. Now, if Jesus is coming in, in general terms, if you host somebody and they come into your house, you are the one that has the food and you serve your visitor. Jesus is saying, I would like to eat with you if you come in. And you're saying, how could I feed Jesus? Well, I want you to come with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, unto them Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Let me say something to you here. If you do not have a concern for the poor and the needy and you are not feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting those who are sick and in prison, you are Laodicean, guaranteed. Jesus is going to say, that's all great that you understood Daniel 11 and Revelation and Daniel and the health message and all of those things, but you were not doing the works of Jesus. You never let me into your life. And so you're doing all these works and saying, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these works in your name? And have we not prophesied in your name? And didn't we figure out all the errors in the church? And he will say, I never knew you. You never let me come in. Friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you can check your own heart and say, 
Am I Laodicean? Because you can have a form of godliness and you can do the right things and not say the wrong things and eat the right food and the, wear the right clothes and have the right front that you put forward. But when it comes to helping people, it's like, oh man, I have to help those people. They're probably just trying to get some money off of me so they can go drink alcohol. I don't have any use for them. And look, friends, I can tell you, having gone through the system of education to become a doctor, man, they churn you out and spit you out, and you become very cynical if you don't watch it. And you see these people that come in, and they're faking illnesses and this and that, and you can become very cynical. I've seen hundreds of people who faked illnesses, and they really are faking, and I'm not just saying that. And so you can become cynical, but Jesus is saying, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. We need to let Jesus come in. Now, as I wrap up, Ellen White has a few things to say. Let's go back to early writings, because there is a response to this message from God's faithful people. Early writings 271. I heard those clothed with the armor speak forth the truth with great power. It had effect. I asked what had made this change, and the angel answered, It is the latter rain, the refreshing from the presence of the Lord, the loud cry of the third angel. Friends, when we let Jesus come in, we will go out and give the loud cry of the third angel, but we will also be using the right arm of the third angel, which is medical missionary work. That's why medical missionary work is there. When Jesus comes in, you will have a heart to feed the hungry, and clothe the naked and help those who are sick with the remedies that God has given to this church. That is an, a, an, a demonstration of the fact that you have let Jesus come in and repented of your lukewarm condition. And then Jesus says in verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Friends, we can overcome as Jesus overcame. 1 John 5 verse 4 says, This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Jesus overcame through the faith of Jesus. We will overcome through the faith of Jesus. And I'm going to read the statement. We're going to close. Testimonies, volume 1, page 187. Those who come up to every point and stand every test and overcome be the price what it may have heeded the counsel of the true witness and they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. I said this yesterday, but if you want to know how to receive the latter rain and be fitted for translation, prayerfully study the message of the faithful and true witness in Revelation 3, 14 through 22 and apply it to your life without comparing your life to anybody else and saying, well, they don't do it, so why should I have to? Jesus is speaking to you. And I don't know what it is in your life that is keeping Jesus from coming in, but we need to let Jesus in. And whatever it is that is preventing Jesus from coming in and having a meal with you, I challenge you today to hear the knocking of that heart, of the door of your heart from the faithful and true witness and let Jesus come in so that when Jesus comes, he can say of you, you overcame as I overcame, now you can be seated with me on my throne. Amen. May we heed the counsel of the faithful and true witness and wake up out of our Laodicean stupor. Let's close with prayer, and as far as possible, let's kneel. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us so much that you spoke through Jesus to us as the faithful and true witness, seeing our true condition as lukewarm Adonis, 
at the end of Earth's history. Forgive us for thinking that we've had it all together when we haven't let you come in. Help us to repent of our slavery to sin and of our lack of concern for others. Help us to remember the statement that says the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to bless others springs forth constantly from within. May that be our experience and forgive us for where we've fallen short and go with us now through the rest of these meetings, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.